is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is TV Take, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today we talk with Charlie Pride, subject of the new American Masters documentary, I'm Just Me, which premieres February 22nd on PBS. Pride was one of the biggest country music stars of the 60s and 70s, and he's the genre's most famous African-American performer. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discuss ABC's Whiskey Cavalier and FX's Better Things. Then reporter Joe Otterson will talk about the arrest of Empire star Jesse Smollett, who is being accused by Chicago PD of falsely reporting a hate crime. Stay tuned. Charlie Pride, thank you for doing this. Okay. The uh, American Masters documentary about your life that's uh, that's coming out on PBS. I think it's uh, going to be February 22nd, I think I was told. That's right. And, and uh, so, I've already seen it now twice, and I think it's pretty good. What did What did you think they got right when you were watching it? Well, they got right what they wanted to put in there. That's what I say. <laughs> I mean, they talked to me and a lot of other people, and they what they do they they condense it down to what they want, and that's that's where it's that's where it's at. Was it a fair representation? You felt like I, I cannot think of. Uh, I don't the, the basic, the basic way I can can uh, explain it to you is that they took a backdrop because my career was smack dab in the middle of the civil rights movement, and they kind of did all the things that they said about me and all the things that people said about me, and backdropped it from the things they used during that period of time. So, so they put in what they wanted to put in. Backdropping each one from the other. That's the best way I can. And I think they did a pretty good job. Now, you, your recording career in country music started, uh, I guess, around the... 66. The 66. That's when you put out your first record on yeah. RCA? Yeah, 1966. How did, you, how did you come to put out that record on RCA? Uh, a guy by the name of Jack Clement. And uh, most, it's two Jacks was uh, very instrumental in my career, and it was Jack Clement and Jack Johnson. So... Johnson, uh, I met him uh, first, and he took me to Jack Clement, and uh, and uh, they gave me seven songs. My second time going down on my vacation, and uh, asked me to work them up and come send them back, and and we'll see what what they sound like. So I didn't send them back; I took them back. So Johnson took me up to Clement's office, and they let me they listen to me do the songs, and. So Clement said to Johnson, I think he's ready to go. So I'll give him my, he had a recording session set for himself. So he let me use it, and we did the Snakes Crawl at Night in Atlantic Coastal Line, and Chet Atkins took it to RCA out in Monterey, California, and about a month later I was signed to RCA. Now, in the movie they talk about this, the the record was sent out without... The no, nothing, wasn't nothing said about it. Back, back when, when uh, 
when um, Sid Atkins took it out to all of the big leagues in Monterey, they he I think he took a picture. I'm not sure, but he played the songs. What they think about he played what they think about the boss and all. I said fine. I think he either he said said I was colored, you know, and uh, and I think he showed the picture too. And they all looked at one another and unanimously they said, well, we're gonna still re- release it. We ain't gonna say nothing about no no color or nothing. So that's the way. And in, in doing that, it caused a lot of you know. Uh, Things people think it can't be. You don't sound like you're supposed to sound. All that kind of stuff. So, but that that's the way they decided to go ahead and release it and let the record speak for itself. And it did. It was it was a successful record yeah. to you. And you you said that you never. How much resistance did you in those early no. days? Then I had the most I uh, resistance in terms of accepting me was done with the promoters, but people thought you know. Like talking to people like yourself, you know, uh, when I'm in, being interviewed, I tell people, you know, that uh, I have not had one iota of hoot calls or nothing from the audience all these years. And I, and I, most of the time, they give me that I can't believe you got to be lying look. So I give them all of my accomplishments and everything. And uh, but uh, and then they say, well, because it's kind of hard for my guests to believe that because of being my with my career right smack dab in the middle of all of the, the, the sit-ins and that sort of thing. But uh, the, the, the thing, it, it worked. It, they, they decided, oh, and by the way, on the on the Snakes Call at Night, there were Felton Jarvis that produced uh, the Elvis, there were Bob Ferguson that produced a uh, couple of other artists, and there was uh, Jack Clement. It was four names on that record of mine, and people would say, it took four people to record you. <laughs> so, so I'd be asked things like that, you know. But Chet Atkins, he was there. One, he was one of the biggest of the four. And uh, it, and it started out late, later on. They said, Country Charlie Pride was on my first album. And they asked me, uh, why did it put Country Charlie Pride, why did it take it off? I said, well, I didn't put it on. I didn't take it off. <laughs> I said, Chet Atkins thought maybe they wanted to make sure that People didn't think it was a, a hoax or something like that, you know, a, a, a gimmick or something like that. that. People wouldn't think it was an, an R&B record, basically. Uh, well, it was just it, with those names on that, they, they figured they figured the four of them. They said, There's got to be something truth about <laughs> truth about this. You uh, uh, in the documentary talks about a, you guys having a Philco radio in your mm-hmm. house growing up. Mm-hmm. What what kind of music would play on that radio? What daddy play? The knobs that he turned to—that's what we heard. Uh, and uh, but like again, he he didn't, we didn't. He and we, it was eight boys and three girls, but uh, nine prides and two McIntyre. My mother was married, had two by first married, but nine by daddy. But he 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 he, he turned all the knobs, what you, whatever we were going to hear on the radio, and and uh, but we listened to uh, uh, WWL out of New Orleans. Uh, we're called Saproco Spiritual Singers, uh, uh, Sam Cooke, and he was the Tolsters and the Five Blind Boys of Mississippi and uh, in Alabama. So we listened to in locals. I mean, Buck Stuff Returning is Buckaroos and WREC. I about well, I'm about uh, right from about 54 miles from Memphis where I live. So uh, Lonnie Glosson, Wayne Rainey, these these are locals. I mean, uh, when I say locals, they were uh, they wasn't no uh, Hank Williams, I mean, but Hank Williams. So they all were, you know, in, I, all, I was always influenced by some of those. So so that's just the way it worked. Mm-hmm. And you, um, 
you grew up singing, but you also grew up playing baseball, right? Yeah, that's why I was going to do it. I was going to be the greatest baseball player. When they say who hit the most home runs, I'd Babe Ruth, Charlie Pride. Who was who was who was the last four hundred hitter? Not Ted Williams, Charlie Pride. That was my intention to do, but it didn't work out that way. You pursued you pursued a career though. You played in the Negro Leagues. You played in yeah, the. That's why I got, I got most of my experience, just like Jackie Robinson, and and then later on, which uh, I followed them was uh, Ernie Banks, Hank Aaron, and and. Uh, Ernie, uh, Ernie Banks, Hank Aaron, and Willie Mays. They, they, they all play, played uh, in that league. And what was your experience like playing at that time? I loved playing. I mean, I, I love baseball and still do. Uh, um, I always uh, thought that, that that's where I was, like I said, I thought that's where I was going to make it. But then uh, I, I, I started thinking well, maybe I'll go ahead and make enough money and buy my own club and put myself on it, on the roster. But uh, I'm part owner of the Texas Rangers right now, but I'm not able to run or do nothing. <laughs> it's too late now. What, uh, at what point did you make the transition from wanting to be a professional ball I didn't make singing? it. I didn't make it. It was a baseball paper. But if you wasn't in the majors by the time you were 18 or, or 20, uh, they just right right wrote you off. One but sixteen clubs in the major see when I was trying to get in there. So then plus they had quarters. We didn't realize that see they had quarters from class D all the way uh, from class well from the majors clear down to class D. To about two two all they only have two of us. When I said y'all them and us, I just cut through the chase. It's just two of us would be on a team. So I had a lot of things like that happen to me that I could have, when I got out of the Army, I could have gone with the Denver Bears. But uh, by the time, they wasn't going to pay no money out of the guy that owned me, that owned my contract or the Negro League. And uh, so what I did, I wrote, uh, uh, I wrote uh, the commissioner of baseball in was, I think, uh, wasn't half, half Landers? No, it wasn't Landers. Anyway, whoever was, uh, was a commission that I wrote him and told him that uh, I, I got a chance to go. I have a chance to go with the Denver Bears, and I, I went in the Army at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, and got out in Fort Carson. And I met uh, Bob Housen, and he said he would he would give me a chance, but he wasn't going to pay no money to the Memphis Red Sox to get me to go. So, so by the time I I, I wrote to tell him that uh, Mr. Uh, Doctor Martin was the one owning the club, I said I'm now I have a I went in the army. I was single. Now I'm coming out. I've got a son and a wife. I said, but I I liked if I got a chance to go with the the bears, and and I didn't get nothing back from the first letter I wrote. So the next letter I wrote, Mister uh, uh, the commissioner, and he said, well, here's the deal: if you get right again and 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 send the letter, you register the letter, and if he gets it then and it gets back in. Now, if you don't receive a contract on or before April 1st, you're a free agent. So that's what I did. I wrote and I got the, the register letter back. And uh, Now, this is February, though. So so by the time I waited, though, and, and hoping that I don't get a contract by April 1st, now it's too late because they done start working from the major league down to Class D, and everybody, the, the quarter has set in. Ain't got no place for me. That's, that's that's just one part. I'm I'm not. That's but it's just, those are the kind of things that 
I was a good ball player. I was pretty good. I cracked my elbow in 1956 with a curveball in Saxon, Missouri. So, But I had I was a good player. And you started singing in public while you were uh, playing baseball, right? Yeah. I, well, when I told you, I told you, I, I, I wrote a letter. I don't know whether I told you this. I maybe I told this some of the other. I've been talking so long, <laughs> so many reporters. But the thing is, is that I, I answered a letter uh, um, I, I played. I played the, when the year I got out out of the army. I was a free agent, but I had to go right back because all of the quarter. I had to go right back and play with the Memphis Red Sox. But I did. I, I agreed. They, I still may have to agree that I would do all of my negotiating if somebody wanted, if a major league club was interested in me. So the, the, I played that year in '88. I mean '88 <laughs> in '58. So. What happened is that I had a good year that year, but they didn't want to give me a raise. I pitched and played outfield. So I answered this sporting news ad. It says, ballplayers capable of playing a ball right this time. I got a reply from Missoula, Montana. I got in shape. So get in good shape as you can. We'll reverse. If you come in and we sign you, we'll reimburse you. I did that. So then they sent me packing like uh, Casey Stingle did <laughs> with the Mets. So I went back to Nash, back to Montana, and uh, I went over to Helena, Montana, and worked for this smelter in Anaconda, Montana. And uh, I would relieve older guys to take their vacation, and uh, while while they would take their vacation, but th- but then they had a ball club, and I played with that club. So all of those clippings that I had there, and all the ones I had against the Willie Mays All Stars, I got a chance to go with. They, they they took a look a look see at me at at the uh, 1961 the uh, Los Angeles Angels, but I didn't make it there either. So they sent me packing with a tuna fish sandwich and orange, <laughs> and I. So now I'm part owner of the Texas Rangers. I, 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 as I said a while ago, I mean I'm, but I know I'm not able to put myself on the roster. <laughs> <laughs> um. And you started singing in clubs when you were in Montana, right? Yeah, yeah. I first started singing the national anthem, and I do national anthem at the ball ballpark. We had we had a semi pro club. We had, like I said, this at the smelter, they had a semi pro club, and I would sing the anthem at, before the game. And then some lady heard me and got me a job singing locally there in Helena, Montana. That's why I started singing locally. Red Foley and Red Savine came there for a show, and I did a couple of songs on it. They said, why don't you go to Nashville? So I did. That's when I cut the song. They took it to Chet Atkins, and here I am. And you were in the 60s and 70s, those those records that you made with Jack Clement and RCA. You, for a time, were the most successful artist that RCA had had since Elvis, right? Well, I'm second only to him that sold the most records on that before they sold it to... Sony, well, we were both on RCA, so that's what it, that's what the discography say. What uh, what was the country music world like in the sixties and seventies after you started? Just like all, like they always were. I mean, it just it, I sound just like all the rest of them. I just had a, I stayed in our oven long than the others. That's all. Um, and when you. When you would when you would go out and play, you you'd said that you you never encountered uh, 
no. um, any any uh, sort of catcalling or anything like no. that in your shows. No, because once they heard me, they didn't care whether I was pink or green. I mean, they, and that's the way it's been for all of these fifty some years. How you know? How as someone who was a public figure though, in a, in a world where most of the musicians are white and most of the fans are white. You know, how closely were you paying attention to what was happening in the civil rights movement at that time? Well, I was paying close attention, but I, I, I still was being myself. And, uh, uh, like, uh, I think uh, it's a guy named Guy Mitchell. We were, tr- we were, we were, uh, we were touring together at the time when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And, uh, we were in Big Spring, Texas. And, uh, that, uh, that happened. He said, he started crying. He said, I can't, go he, he didn't want to go and do the show you know? so I, I got to make a decision I need to call in my wife I don't need to call in my then and only manager I ever had Johnson I didn't need to call I said this is my call so I decided to go do the show and on the way to the show um, I took a cab and the dispatcher called the cab driver he said hey so they got him that Martin Luther King they assassinated him oh so I got one here that I'm taking to the show right now so I got things like that. Now, so when I got on stage, I said nothing about what had happened and Guy Mitchell not wanting to go. I did my show. I did probably one of the finest shows i ever done. And uh, I got a standing ovation. And uh, so people said, why you didn't say that? Well, well they, I said, they were aware of what I was, uh, uh, you know, I had shocked, you know, I said, I shocked a lot of people going on stage like they didn't know, because no were no pictures or nothing. But, when I got through my show, nobody said nothing, but that that that, that just hung over the those pigments and everything hung over the crowd. But they liked what they heard, and they, I, I, and without saying it, I think they appreciated me going doing the show and not saying anything about it, and all and still was aware of what attack took place in Memphis when the uh, guy didn't want to go. Your big hit, um, biggest hit. Probably was um, Kiss an Angel. Angel. Good morning. Right. Can you talk about that song and and how that came? Well, to you? that was that was written by uh, his son. His son was at the at the premiere in Nashville, Night Full Last. Uh, Bob. His name was Ben Peters, and his mother and his and her son. He was they were there for uh, for the premiere, and so I, I probably I've recorded more of his songs, his dad's song, than anybody in business in the business. So we. They they ask questions the same way, and uh, I just answer pretty near what I'm saying to you. I told I had the same type of thing there, and I, same same basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. And what uh, when you look at the country music landscape now? I mean, mm-hmm. are you are you surprised that there haven't been more African Americans since no. you? No. Why not? Because I'm unique, been unique ever since I started doing it, and uh, whether they came into it because of me or not because of me didn't make any difference. Uh, I sound just like all the rest of the country artists. I'll give you this, and I think you condensed it down. It was this way: uh, me, Roger Staubach, uh, uh, Roger Staubach. Berlin Husky, Brenda Lee, and myself went to Toronto to do a pilot, or, uh, possibly like a hee-haw type thing before before hee-haw came. Now, I didn't know whether uh, it was Brenda 
rehearsing with me. But I was out there talking. What, what the drummer, what the, uh, uh, they call him Skinny Legs, uh, um, black singer. Um, hmm, I, can't, I couldn't think of his name. Um, I used to remember him. Anyway, they call him Skinny Legs, but his drummer, it was a black singer that sang. And it was he was one of the five of us that were, went up there to try to do this particular t- pilot. So his grand, his uh, his drummer says, you ever listen to any other kind of music? I said, yeah, I did. I named well, what you did here about Sam Cooke and the different one of spoke it, the gospel singer. So I got that Jim Reeves, which I did. When I said Jim, he says, he cut me. He says, you, it's you for real, ain't you? I said, what? He said, you for real? I said, he said, well, I just thought I heard you singing the music and you making that money, you know, singing the music, but I didn't know you talk like them too. Now, I thought that was, I think that's the best condensed way I could give it to you. Now, so you mark that down. But he thought maybe I was going to be talking like Step and Fetch It or something like that. So all these things happened, but still, there was no hoot calls and nothing to but I have been called that, but I was growing up in Mississippi. Oh, I called a lot, but I'm just giving you that uh, when they hear me, heard me sing, and when they heard me talk or whatever, and they saw I wasn't on Step and Fetch, they said, oh, I was mistaken. So I don't give, I don't, I don't give, uh, I don't give advice. I don't, I mean, we got Jimmy Allen now, which is a nice guy like him. Uh, Hood and the Blowfish, which is Gary, uh, I mean, Darius Rucker. I mean, they all, but we had people like Big Al Downing. We had, uh, the doctor from, um, from, uh, he was somewhere in, uh, Virginia. But, but they said, well, why haven't others made it? Well, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I don't know why they didn't make it, but I got, I got an idea, but I'm not going to express it of my full reason I don't think they may. Well, I'll just say this. I think, I, I think I've said it already. I sound like all the rest of the country singers. Maybe they didn't. I'll just put it that way. Uh, in, the, in the movie, uh, Marty Stewart says that yeah. uh, he thought that working with Johnny Cash had prepared Jack Clement for working yeah. with you. Yeah, I saw him say that. I, I thought that was a really interesting uh, way to put it. Well, he's a, he's a Mississippi buddy of mine. Uh, real, real nice guy. Big fan of mine, too. Marty, um, Marty Stewart, and you know, and he says, you know, he sometimes makes him feel bad. I think he said something about that too, about the three civil rights workers that was found near his hometown of Philadelphia. Well, see, my thing when I went on stage, uh, I said, now, I, I was in, I was in a uh, in in Detroit eating breakfast, and this lady, I told. her, because I've been going on stage. Tell them hello. Hello, Charlie. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Charlie Pride from Sledge, Mississippi. I hope you enjoy our singing. He said, well, can't you say, well, you say you're from Mississippi. Then you could say you're from Memphis or something. I said, I'm from Sledge, Mississippi. It's not what makes you. I said, well, because a lot of people, you know, they didn't want to admit being from Sledge. People like, I said, well, you know, people from Mississippi, they're kind of dumb. You know, they're kind of, I said, well, let's see some dumb people. Let's see Elvis Presley, Oprah Winfrey. Let's see Jimmy Rogers. I just started name. I said, you know, I said, I'm just going to stick around all them dumb people. I said, so that's the kind of, that's the way I've been all my life, you see. So now I can meet, I don't care if it's out here in L.A. or anywhere. Hey, Charlie, Charlie, I'm from Mississippi. I'm. <laughs> see, they, they're proud. I didn't do that for that reason, but I did it because I just told the truth. 
where I was from. And now if they hear the voice, and that's the way they did it. They didn't want to be calling me no hoot, hoot cows and hoot calls and all that. It's, I don't care if he's green. I like his singing. Charlie Pride, thank you very thank much. Thank you. ABC will debut drama Whiskey Cavalier February 24th after the Oscars. On February 28th, Better Things will return for its third season on FX. Caroline Framke and Daniel D'Addario talked about the two shows. So we're discussing two shows this week, the first of which is a new show that's debuting in about the highest profile way I could imagine for what seems from the marketing like a pretty conventional ABC drama. Caroline, you've seen, and I haven't, Whiskey Cavalier. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect from this spy drama? Yeah, it's interesting that they're premiering this after the Oscars, especially now that we know the Oscars will be longer than the three hours they wanted it to be on Sunday. But I think it's an interesting spot for it because it is an ABC drama, but it is more accurately a dramedy, heavy on the comedy. Uh, it stars Scott Foley and Lauren Cohan, who was recently in The Walking Dead. And it comes from David Hemmingson, produced by Bill Lawrence, both of whom come from comedy like Scrubs and Just Shoot Me and whatnot. So the tone is not quite straight drama. They are definitely sort of playing around with the conventions of spy dramas in a way that ABC clearly thinks will catch on yeah obviously they have a huge amount of faith in this if they are engineering this <laughs> opportunity to get it in front of as many eyeballs as they can on their most viewed night of the year i'm curious as to what sets this apart so the tone is drama but heavy on comedy yes. like the premise is he's just a spy I, like, <laughs> like break break it down for me what makes it sure. different from like alias <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's definitely much more comedic than that. I mean, honestly, everyone involved in it comes from comedy more so than drama. Even the director of the first few episodes, Peter Atencio, was the in-house director for Key and Peele, which obviously took on a lot of different genres in a very funny way. So he has experience sort of turning around conventions in a way that is funnier rather than more dramatic. And Scott Foley's talked also about how he wanted to do this because he wanted to do something funny. He wouldn't have wanted to do it if it were just straight drama. And I think that's smart because he is good at it. But the thing that I think sets it apart is that it doesn't take itself very seriously, which I like. Um, but basically, all you kind of need to know about Whiskey Cavalier is that Scott Foley's character is named Will Chase, <laughs> which is an extremely silly name, but it knows it's very silly. And if you're into that sort of thing, you'll like this sort of thing. I have to be honest. I'm not sure on the East Coast I will have the energy to watch it live <laughs> after the Academy Awards. Fair. But you've uh, painted a pretty compelling picture for what it's worth. Yeah, I think um, I think it's fun. It's lighthearted. It's not revolutionizing the world or anything. But it's a perfectly fine way to spend an hour. I like a lot of the people in it. Uh, Foley and Cohen are really good together, but it's it's straight up. You know, there's a lot of she has her walls up and he loves too hard and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You've seen it. You like it. They're good at it, but it is what it is. Well, sometimes there's nothing wrong with the uh, conventional network drama. Exactly. But uh, a polar opposite of that maybe is a pretty unconventional cable drama. That's what I was setting up. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Great minds. Yes, exactly. Uh, Better Things, which you reviewed. I did. Better Things. Uh, that's Pamela Adlon. Pamela Adlon's comedy on FX now in its third season coming out next Thursday. And obviously the big 
story about this one is that this is the first season that Avalon has produced without her co-creator, Louis C.K. Now, we've both seen it. Um, we both liked it a lot. And I think it's fair to say that the new season proves that Adlon knows what she's doing, is a really strong, singular voice. And I thought we, we've seen eight out of 12 episodes of the new season. So we've it's fair to say that we've seen most of the season. And I think it's just as strong as it's always been. So anyone who is concerned about it either losing step or whatever, um, I think there's a lot to commend it for still. I totally agree. Um, we were talking offline that it's hard to pinpoint exactly what has changed. Of course. Let alone if it changed just as part of the natural evolution of a show or if it changed because of the departure of Louis C.K. I, I will say, though, that in the main, quality-wise, uh, the show is remarkably consistent. It has it. It is at a very, very, very high level of wit, insight, production, all of those things are pretty top of the line as far as I'm concerned, and none of that has changed. Right, and she's also, she, like in season two, she directed all the episodes of season three, so she's clearly still at the helm here. And um, one thing, I mean, one thing that I like, I like having, seeing what happens when people who maybe wrote alone or wrote with just one other person do like, I, I like seeing what happens when they branch out. And for this season, um, she hired four writers, two women, two men to kind of get some more perspectives in the room. And I do think there are moments when you can see that. Um, and I'm always a fan of that. So I liked seeing those. I think this, I tried to articulate this in my review, but it is tricky. <laughs> I do feel like, cause I mean, on one level, you can't know what's different definitively unless you are in the room with them when they were writing something. But I do think the season is a little bit less um, preoccupied with mortality and kind of the looming way that it has been in the past, which has been a hallmark of CK's comedy before. I think this season's a little bit more matter of fact about it. I think it is sort of it, it it makes sense to me that this season feels like it's looked at trauma and is just figuring out how to move on from there, if that makes any sense. It does. In in some ways it's a bit breezier and in other ways if I had a critique of the show, which is truly one of my absolute favorites on TV, <laughs> Uh, right now, it would be that in the past it's been a bit bitsy and episodic in a way that it almost felt like mm -hmm. there was too much on the show's mind for it to take on everything it wanted to. I think this season has a bit of an overarching plotline involving uh, Pamela's character, uh, Sam Fox, her experiences on a film set. And mm -hmm. the ways in which she is made to feel unsafe and seeks to reclaim a feeling of safety and security uh, and advocate for others it is by far from the only thing on this season's mind, but it actually devotes real time to that in a way that maybe the show in the past wouldn't have done. And I think that maybe gets to what you're talking about, that there's a bit more focus in a way that there can't necessarily be when it's one or two minds working on something and kind of shutting out the world around them. Right. And I think that storyline is really emblematic of something Better Things has always done well. I mean, how many shows have we talked about, reviewed, watched, et cetera, that take on, you know, the behind the scenes working of Hollywood? You know, we we get it. But one thing Better Things has always done really well is to show sort of the less glamorous sides of it, not in terms of like, oh, this gritty, you know, party scene, but this is a working mom supporting her kids by taking jobs that maybe others wouldn't. 
And that storyline about the unsafe work conditions is a really common thing that doesn't often get depicted. It's not sexual harassment per se, but it is still damaging and it ruins careers and it makes people miserable. So I like that she decided to take that on this season. She's really smart about it. She's been working in this business for decades, so she's obviously very well qualified to talk about it. And I think that that is worthwhile as always. Yeah, absolutely. And I think she does it in a way that it doesn't feel like some over-the-top Baroque, horrible, worst experience of her life. It is just, as you say, like a lived reality. No one is making huge, colossal, obvious mistakes. Everyone is just airing the 10% too much. And I think that's kind of the humanity that I'm really glad to see that a better thing still has in its arsenal. Exactly. And quick shout out to the actors who play her kids, especially I love Olivia Edward, who plays her youngest daughter. She has some incredible moments this season. Honestly, there's that one scene, I think we're thinking of the same one, that is not even worth spoiling because when it hits, it's it's like a tidal wave. I couldn't believe what she was capable of doing. (laughs) That might be the lead of my review, so you guys should go (laughs) check it out. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And with that, there's always more TV where that came from. Empire star Jesse Smollett turned himself in Thursday to Chicago police, who have accused him of staging his own assault as part of a salary negotiation. Reporter Joe Otterson has been covering the story for Variety. So, Joe, what do we know so far? This is... Thursday, early af- late afternoon, I guess, when we're taping this, by the way. Um, what do we know so far about Jesse Smollett? Uh, so Mr. Smollett has been released on a $100,000 bond after he surrendered to Chicago authorities in the early hours of Thursday morning. He was arrested and formally charged with uh, a felony count of filing a false police report and I believe disorderly conduct as well. Um, as of right now, he is back on the set of the Fox series Empire, on which he is a core cast member. But exactly uh, how much time he is going to be spending there as the show wraps up its final two episodes of season five remains to be seen. Now, f- uh, filing a false police report, this is this story has been developing for over a week. Uh, just to kind of recap a little bit, um, Jesse had uh, reported to police that he was the victim of a hate crime. Mm-hmm that he uh, had been attacked by two men in the early hours of the morning in Chicago who tied a rope around his neck, poured an unknown chemical on him and beat him up. And uh, hurled uh, racist and homophobic slurs at him uh, early on in the situ- at some point during the situation and also used the phrase, uh, this is MAGA country or MAGA, referring to make America great again and you know as used by President Trump and his supporters. So police are saying that uh, Jesse actually paid two men to do this to him. Um, what What's the reason that they're given? Uh, according to the police, after interviewing the two men who were brothers, who were both acquaintances of Jesse, uh, the police said that he carried out that they, he paid these men to carry out this attack because he was quote dissatisfied with his salary uh, on Empire and was looking to generate some press and some goodwill towards himself and the public eye in order to have more leverage going into his uh, renegotiation with Fox. 
And how much money, about how much does Jesse make on the show, and what, how's that compared to what the other stars make? Uh, so Jesse originally, when the show first started, was making about twenty thousand dollars an episode. Since then, that number has increased. Uh, so he's currently making around sixty thousand dollars an episode. Is what we've been able to pin down. That's pretty significantly less than uh, a couple of his co-stars, both Terrence Howard and Taraji P Henson, make in the low six figures. I've heard around two hundred thousand dollars per episode. But bearing in mind that both of them were very well established stars uh, prior to the launch of Empire back in 2015. So this is this whole thing has been upsetting, surprising. You can throw um, any of number of modifiers at it. Um, the most recent development that he's back on set is uh, like much of this uh, story, a big surprise, at least to me. Um, there, as you said, there's about a week, an episode and a half left to shoot. Um, what's the incentive for Fox to, you know, try to power through with this? Like what, what are the stakes here for, for Fox? I mean, the stakes are huge, especially now considering where we are and kind of the, you know, the me too movement era of Hollywood. Um, I mean, again, it's just so baffling to me that, you know, this, this man who was so well-received uh, for his role on the show, which has dealt very explicitly with issues of race and issues of homophobia, um, if if he ultimately is convicted or maybe pleads guilty to uh, some sort of lesser charge in this case, I just, I, I cannot see a situation in which he stays on this show. Um, the, the stakes are very high for Fox. They need to act quickly and decisively because if they don't this is just going to be an absolute uh, PR nightmare for them like I mean worse than it already is and Empire is still a very high priority I mean the show is not the ratings juggernaut that it once was but it's still a, a successful show you know, measured against other broadcast dramas, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's still uh, one of their highest rated shows. Um, I don't have the exact uh, delayed viewing figures in front of me, but I believe Empire and Nine One One are their two highest rated shows currently. The scripted shows, I should say. And this is also uh, one of the many, many pieces in play when you get down to a sort of content level in the Disney Fox merger. Right? This is uh, this is a Fox produced show for the Fox Broadcasting Network. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a month or so, when Disney's acquisition of 21st Century Fox is closed, this will be uh, effectively a Disney produced show for Rupert Murdoch's Fox Broadcasting. Does that add? Any sort of uh, potential wrinkles to the situation? I mean, I, I definitely think it has to, yeah. I mean, because as we know, Disney, you know, is, is not a company that likes uh, any whiff of controversy uh, around any of their productions. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's definitely going to factor into the thinking. I mean, whether or not the show comes back for a sixth season remains to be seen. I, I think in terms of it coming back, I still think there's a very real chance it will come back because, as we said, it's still one of their most popular shows. And, you know, Jussie is a, is, has been a major part of the show from the beginning, but he's not. You know, it's more of an ensemble now. So, I mean, it's possible he could be written off the show in some way or, you know, if he ultimately is suspended or fired. But, I mean, that, you know, remains to be seen. All right. This is a a developing story. We'll stay on it. Joe, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Jeremy Carver of DC Universe's Doom Patrol. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. 
computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.